two speakers are actually in Brisbane arriving this morning. Zach Blast from Buffalo. Um, um, and it, you reminded us, we've been in kind of a long time. I feel like we've been in kind of observing each other, but we haven't seen each other since 2011, actually. So it's kind of, um, so welcome to Brisbane. Very, we were saying both to Horian and Zach, it'll be beautiful, sunny weather, like a break from the grim winter of the Northern Hemisphere. And um, that's not the case, unfortunately. Um, um, but Zach is a writer and an artist um, and currently assistant professor at the Department of Art um, at the University of Buffalo um, and has lectured and exhibited in a number of um, really interesting contexts over the past uh, few years, uh, FACT in Liverpool, uh, ICA in London, and you were also saying recently at uh, Transmediale in Berlin. Um, and Zach is one of those people that um, I think shares really an affinity with a lot of them, uh, a lot of Hito's concerns, and um, uh, I think we were really excited actually when Hito suggested to invite him to come to Brisbane. So, and not only that, this is kind of a, maybe a precursor in some regard to um, uh, the next exhibition in a sense, because Zach is making a new work for Imaginary Accord, uh, which opens uh, in just over a month here in Brisbane at the IMA. Um, but without further ado, I'm gonna let Zach talk about um, some past projects, but also things coming up and research you're doing right now. Hi, everyone. Um, first off, I'd really like to thank Eileen and Johan for inviting me here, bringing me here to share my work with you today. It's such an honor and it's my pleasure. So I'm really, really grateful to be here. Um, so today I'm going to basically go through three different projects. Um, I'm kind of at this funny stage in my practice where I'm finishing up a big body of work that I've been making for about the past five years, and as I'm finishing that up, I'm simultaneously starting this new body of work on the Contra Internet. So I'll kind of I'll run through the uh, work that I've been doing on faces and biometrics and masks, and talk about the kind of conceptual framework for that, which is informatic opacity, and then I'll transition into the work on the Contra Internet, and that will be more theoretical because I'm kind of still in this stage where I'm testing things out, I'm trying to figure out you know, exactly what this means or you know, the different things that it could possibly mean, and then show you some maybe final or maybe rough drafts of kind of the first things that I've made within uh, that body of work. Okay. So um, the first project I'm going to talk to you about is called Facial Weaponization Suite, and this project was a series of mask-making workshops that I organized in different places around the world, and they were community-based where I would lead workshops with a group of people, oftentimes up to a month, and then I would produce a collective mask, which was actually based on the aggregated uh, three-dimensional um, data of every person's face, so we'd create these collective masks that when all that data was brought together but not averaged, it would produce this mask that basically didn't look like anything like a human face, was super abstract, and because of that, it was able to evade biometric uh, facial recognition technologies. So um, often when now, when I'm asked to speak about this work, it's always in the context of like the NSA, global surveillance, Edward Snowden, and so I'm always asked to talk about this work in relation to surveillance and privacy, but actually 
when I began this work, I mean, of course I was thinking about those things, but those weren't the focal points of this project at all. I was interested in an aspect of biometrics that not a lot of people talk about in relationship to surveillance, which is actually the technical forms of standardization that biometrics has to enact in order to even be able to participate in something like global surveillance. Um, so what I mean is that basically whether, so for those of you that aren't familiar with biometrics, these are digital technologies like uh, facial recognition, iris scans, fingerprint analysis, different digital technologies that analyze the surface of the body, right? So they analyze the surface of the body and fully quantify that to arrive at some kind of core truth about an individual. Okay, so whether it's a face or a fingerprint or an eye or even the softer biometrics like determining race or gender, um, there has to be a technical standard developed in order to be able to make that calculation. So kind of the, like, the dream of biometrics is to create global standards for identification, right, that operate at this global scale at a technical level. So for a face, it's we're able to standardize how we calculate for a face at a global technical scale. So of course, when you build a technology around such a rigid construction of identification, there are gonna be you know, numerous pitfalls and problems around right, things that fall out of that configuration, whether in terms of uh, practicing political resistance or experiencing forms of political subjugation. So, um, Right, so, so here's a good example of like, right, a digital camera working, analyzing the face. So, right, how does the camera know that it's looking at a face, right? How, do, how does this camera know to put boxes around faces when they show up? Well, it's been programmed by people, right? It's been programmed by people to be able to make that decision. But then things get a little complicated. So, right, here's an example of blink detection. And um, basically, these moments when these identification technologies fail is when we're actually able to see the socio-political biases that are built into their very technological construction. So, right, with blink detection, here we have someone who's not blinking, but again, right, we ask the question, well, how does the camera even know if someone is blinking or not blinking to begin with? Well, people have programmed that based on aggregated data, right, of analyzing certain types of people's blinks. Now, what we could potentially extract or extrapolate from this example is that perhaps in the data set, there weren't enough um, Asian people, right, factored into the data set. Maybe it was heavily biased toward the Caucasian, which is actually um, typically the case with these uh, developments when you do the research. So another example, right, with face detection. So time and again, when um, biometric technologies get developed, they often fail to recognize dark skin. Now, of course, like, you know, this is kind of a funny example. Like, it's recognizing the white woman on uh, the black man's shirt, right, rather than his face. But, of course, um, I'm not going to get into this because it will take us in different territory, but actually, uh, since biometrics are so deeply ingrained in forms of global governance today, falling out of recognition from these machines uh, potentially produces certain forms of political precarity. So, and I mean, my work is guilty of this. There's a lot of uh, artwork around this now, around kind of a romance of escape, right? A romance of getting out of the guise of biometric technologies, but it's also just important to recognize that that's actually a double-edged sword. Like, just as much as people are interested in falling out of uh, the recognition of these machines, like, some people always already fall out of the recognition from those machines, and they produce certain political consequences in certain situations. 
Okay, so um, as I was doing my research on thinking about biometrics as a form of identification standardization and different politics that would be, or different um, political theories that would be amenable to thinking about um, an anti-biometric stance in relationship specifically to queerness, feminism, and transgender politics today, um, I ended up coming to the Caribbean philosopher Edward Glissant and, you know, um, his theorization of opacity, which is often, you know, one of his kind of like signature um, theoretical endeavors uh, Glissant has given us. And there are a lot of different political philosophies around these ideas of opacity, invisibility, imperceptibility today. They kind of proliferate all over the place, whether it's like uh, the radical French group, the Invisible Committee, or Tikkun in their writings on invisibility, or Deleuze's uh, pathway of imperceptibility. But for me, Glissant is actually kind of the paradigmatic thinker, if you want to actually articulate a critique um, around biometrics from queer feminist perspectives. So this is a famous statement from Glissant, we clamor for the right to opacity for everyone. And maybe uh, like a really easy way to kind of access what Glissant means by opacity is something like unassigned alterity, right? It's something that is not of an identifiable logic that constitutes us, our relations to the world. So Glissant's uh, theory of opacity is incredibly robust because it's at once ontological um, in the way that he describes opacity as a way of um, the world. It's also an ethical demand, right, which you can kind of take from this statement. At other times, he talks about it as a form of political legitimacy. So right, he's also interested in opacity being a kind of politics. And it's also aesthetic for Glissant. So there's all these kind of amazing ways to think about opacity. But um, perhaps one way to think about this in relationships to biometrics, right, and the way they try and abstract or standardize different forms of identity is that biometrics, if it does anything, it annihilates opacity, right? It's invested in actually destroying the opacity that Glissant talks about. So I came really interested in this idea of opacity and also I'm trying to update it and think about it through information technology, through digital media, because... Um, things would shift and change if you bring Glissant's idea of opacity into the realm of informatics because, of course, when you're thinking about struggles for opacity in relation to biometrics, it's not just about whether you are able to maintain a certain opaqueness between a human, but also a machine, right? And the ways that we achieve or maintain opaqueness between a machine and a human are not necessarily the same thing at all, although they could overlap. And a good example of this is the mask, right, which I'll get to where the mask is hyper-visible to a human, right, but it becomes opaque or undetectable to a machine. So. Um, as I began thinking about this idea of informatic opacity, which I, I get like a really easy definition for me would be a practice of you know, anti-standardization or anti-normativity at a global technical scale, right? And it would also take into consideration that a broad range of minoritarian persons are the people that are the most uh, negatively structurally impacted by the standardization of identification that biometrics forces on populations around the world. So, um, I kind of thought that mask, the kind of the rise in popularity of mask protests around the world was a really powerful articulation of what informatic opacity might potentially look like. And, you know, whether if you're looking at the Zapatistas or Black Bloc protests, Pussy Riot Solidarity protests, or even Anonymous, you know, various groups that, ought, like, you know, fall somewhere on the scale of leftist politics. But what all of those groups articulate is that 
okay, the mask is not just about hiding. And this is where opacity actually diverges from the common politics of privacy that's so often uh, pushed in relationship to surveillance. So right with the mask, of course, there is this possibility of, of hiding one's identity uh, from a machine, from a police officer or whatever, but also within the context of the mask and social movements, there's something about positive transformation that's collective. So here, the mask should not only be thought of as some kind of negative individual act of hiding, but also a process of collective transformation that's positive in the sense that, right, what the mask is articulating is a certain demand to be reduced right to the biometric gaze. I, I can address that during the Q&A, if you, if you don't mind. That's kind of the double-edged um, of, of the mask, sure. So, okay, so basically, um, you know, I was really inspired by looking at mask and social movements, and um, this is kind of why I ended up uh, approaching biometrics and thinking about forms of aesthetic resistance through masks. And so this is a visualization of how I would bring facial data together. And so basically, as you saw at the beginning of this video, those are just different scans of different faces, and then these faces get average, they're actually, no, they're not average. They get composited together, and then what, in, uh, what results is an abstract form. And I should say, when I lead these workshops, um, almost all of the decisions are collectively based, so when I work with the group of people, I'm kind of not the one making all the decisions about what the mask is gonna look like, what we're gonna do, the form it's gonna take. Those are all decided during the workshop process. So the first mask I made was this mask called the Fag Face Mask, which was made in Los Angeles. And this was addressing um, an emerging set of scientific studies that were claiming you were able to successfully determine whether someone is gay or straight based on quick, quick rapid exposure to another person's face. So I, I was really interested in um, you know, how that study, even though it's not using biometric technologies, right, these are just scientists showing people crop faces at a certain amount of milliseconds and asking them, oh, is this person gay or straight? But how, right, those studies, even though they're not using biometric technologies, treat the face biometrically still. And so I made this mask that was like a queer critique of that. And, you know, this mask, when I first made it, it wasn't really part of this larger body of work at the time. And it was meant to be kind of funny in the sense that, well, if these scientists claim you can detect if, you know, one face is gay or straight by simultaneously wearing like 20 gay faces, you end up with something unrecognizable. And um, the action that I did with this mask was a station that I was invited to create with the One Archives at Gay Pride in Los Angeles a couple years ago uh, with the One Archives, and the One Archives is um, one of the largest LGBTIQ archives um, in the world, and they were organizing this event that was about uh, kind of critiquing mainstream gay and lesbian politics that often get pushed at major pride events like in New York and LA. And so we created this fag face scanning station where we would actually performatively scan your face and reenact that study and tell you if you had gay face or not to kind of just make you go through the like ridiculousness of that calculation and experience. The second mask I made was um, in San Diego with the artist Ricardo Dominguez, who runs a hacker lab there. And this mask dealt with various issues of blackness in relation to biometrics. So, um, you know, as you already saw with the previous image, right, there's this issue of biometrics from a racial perspective where um, darkness often falls out of detection, right, and that can um, that can and does produce certain forms of political subjugation. But then at the exact same time, if you think about black 
from an informatic perspective, black highly obfuscates. So within this context, you kind of have this irresolvable knot of blackness, where right from the racial perspective, there's um, right, certain political issues, but then from the informatic perspective, black is actually a vector of undetectability. So we were looking at these different um, constellations of uh, blackness, and we developed certain uh, tableau vivants for this mask based on theater of the oppressed workshops and then they were staged publicly around uh, San Diego you know, kind of meditating on these different ways you could think about blackness because of course black is also an aesthetic trope in militant protest. The third mask dealt with feminism and feminism's relationship to visibility and recognition thinking about a lot of non-western feminist writings on veils and burqas that kind of complicate that knee-jerk western reaction of um, right, the covering of the face equals the erasure of feminist agency. And this mask, oh, here's a, this is what they look like when they're 3D modeled before they're actually fabricated. And um, this was made in New York, and then this was, um, there was a performance led by five feminist performance artists that did a conversation-driven performance around these issues based on their own personal experiences. And then the last mask in the series was made in Mexico, um, Oh, in the spring, and kind of at this point, um, issues of color and having a kind of coherent theme really kind of fell away. And so this was thinking about a lot of different things, issues of the border, um, because biometrics is still currently the world's number one border security technology. Also thinking about, um, you know, me being a U.S. citizen coming into Mexico, that relationship, and biometrics, um, you know, relationship of uh, policing the border, that, it, that connection to death. Um, so we ended up leading this, when we made this mask, we ended up leading a procession around parts of Mexico City, and this was, you know, kind of partially based on Mexico's own history of mask procession, and using that as a way to actually meditate on these kind of more somber, sad, uh, melancholic aspects um, of biometrics, right? So... Yeah, this was just, uh, we just walked through like big chunks of Mexico City. So the, so actually I kind of think of the mask project as um, a rather utopian project because it's um, engaging with social movements and it's interested in possibilities of collective transformation. But I decided to make kind of a dystopic counterpart to the work to be able to more articulate directly the critique of biometrics. So I made this project called Face Cages, which I'm currently in the process of finishing up this year. It's only halfway done. And I'm working with three other uh, artists, which I'll, you'll see in a minute. But this work is very much thinking about the biometric diagram as a kind of abstract violence or abstract form of dehumanization. So, um, right, this is often how you might encounter a face when it's getting biometrically analyzed, and usually these are always kind of fun, happy, cheerful moments. People are like, oh my god, this is so cool, like my, you know, the diagram moves when I blink and all of this, but um, I kind of wanted to find a way to actually bring this aesthetic of the biometric diagram back in line with criminalization and policing, which of course, even though biometric development now happens in a lot of, um, you know, kind of like startup culture, um, it's still right primarily being developed as a tool for policing and militarization and surveillance. So I wanted to find a way to take this diagram and put it back in that context. And what I started to do first was actually just take these diagrams 
and make them three-dimensional to see you know, what they look like when you really have a three-dimensional version of them. And so I did a, a biometric scan of my face, and that, which is this, and then I made it three-dimensional, and this is basically what you ended up with. And I was really struck by this because, of course, it kind of unmistakably looks like a facial torture device. So I did a test, and I 3D printed one of these in plastic, and what was interesting was that it actually was quite painful to wear on my face, even though the measurements, right, that the biometric machine calculated were accurate. So there was an interesting disjuncture there between the biometric diagram, like, in the computational realm is this kind of, like, light, playful thing that moves and adjusts to your face, but when that becomes a material object that you then try and put on the surface of your face, right, there's an incongruity there. So... Um, I ended up, this is actually just a test of um, a plastic one on my face, and um, I ended up making, I've made three of these so far, and what happens is these are fabricated in metal and stainless steel, and then they're used in endurance performances for the camera, so um, partially this is kind of about, right, making, um, right, just exaggerating that biometric incongruence in time and kind of the drama that ensues through that. So this is a 3D model of one of them, and then this is one of the performance artists. This is the Iranian-American performance artist, Ellie Merman, who's based in Los Angeles. And this is her wearing, actually, one of the metal devices. And here's another one, 3D model. And this is uh, Misha Cardinas, who is a Latina transgender performance artist now based in Toronto. And this is also her wearing the actual metal one. And here is an example of what the videos look like. These are kind of rough versions of them, but they're basically shot to look like uh, basically portraits, kind of like moving portraits. So the prompt of the endurance performance is wear it until you can't bear it any longer. And basically they're installed in this very standardized way to almost kind of evoke like a police lineup or something like that to really play with the aesthetics of criminalization. And then, so these are the three that have all been modeled and sketched. And the fourth one um, is the queer African-American artist, Paul Mpaji, who's based in Los Angeles. So his is the fourth one that's getting made right now. Okay, so um, that's kind of a body of work that I'm wrapping up. And now I'll move to uh, talk about the Contra Internet and the way that I'm thinking about that. So I've really just started this, and it actually started because I was super annoyed that my, <laughs> my biometrics work got interpolated into the regime of post-Internet art, and I found that really peculiar, um, but also very telling of kind of the emptiness of that as a category to be able to kind of stuff in whatever artwork it wants to consume within a market framework. So the way that I'm thinking about uh, Contra Internet, there's a lot of different ways I'm thinking about this, but the first is actually just a critique of the idea of the internet as like um, something, like as a definition. Like, so one way to think, uh, or how I'm thinking about the internet is actually as a definitional term, it's highly obfuscating. Like if, um, you know, I was to ask maybe the majority of you in here, like, what actually is the internet? Like, what is it? And what does it consist of? And what are its boundaries? That's a very difficult question to ask. So there's something about the, just the very concept of the internet that is just not adequate to really think about the constellation of digital networks that make up the internet today. And I'm, I'm going to get to this in a little bit, but also on the internet, um, perhaps in a more just kind of like everyday social sense has become something of a totality because it's very hard to think about 
and outside to the internet. And even when you pose to people that you might be against the internet, that is like literally an unthinkable thing to most people. So those instances always kind of reveal that the internet has become something of a totality that's really difficult to understand and outside to. And one way, another way to think about this is the, um, how the potentiality of digital networks always get relegated to the internet, right? Which is something that is not necessarily the same thing. The potentiality of digital networking, right, should never just be relegated to right, the internet. So, um, and also just thinking about the internet now as something that's deeply embedded in neoliberalism and forms of control. And this other bit about intersectional analysis is kind of a classical form of feminist critique, which is actually thinking about issues of racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and the way it intersects with the internet. I've already talked about this refusal of standardization. A radicalization of techniques might uh, line up with a lot of feminist science and technology uh, work since the 80s, which is about, you know, thinking about or critiquing the possibility of total technological objectivity or neutrality. You know, I think of someone like Donna Haraway here in Situated Knowledges as a form of feminist objectivity. Then another big part of this work is actually thinking about this subjectivity that gets produced through um, social media monoculture. So I think contra-internet would engage with this. And then also there's like the literal creation of alternatives to the internet, which might be things like mesh networking or even the way that certain cryptographic practices try to gesture toward that. And I'll talk about some of these tactics in a minute. So um, I have different kind of methodologies that I'm using to move through this right now. One is utopian plagiarism, which was a methodology that Critical Art Ensemble first developed in the early 90s. And this is actually how they came up with their idea of electronic civil disobedience, which is just stealing concepts and tweaking them or adding something to them to see if, you know, what uh, realm of possibilities that might emerge if you just subtly tweak or change a concept or idea. So within this, um, you know, thinking about theory here, um, I'll just kind of go through like the steps that I'm making. So one thing that I've noticed is just there's a trend in theory which post-internet is symptomatic of, which is kind of an obsessive use of post to diagnose anything that has to do with a contemporary moment, whether, you know, the mode of production, post-Fordism, right, we're post-contemporary with art, post-identity, we're post-race, post-queer, post-human. So Donna Haraway, you know, has a really accurate description of this, which she calls going postal. So, I mean, this is just kind of, I don't know, this is highly debatable, and I guess this is just me putting my own personal cards on the table, so that I just don't think the use of post, um, it almost kind of, it doesn't really help us get to the specificity of thinking about the uh, historical present. There's something about post that actually illustrates a lack of being able to think the present, or maybe the difficulty in thinking of the present, so just relying on older terms and adding a prefix to them. Okay, so, um, the way that I, you know, I guess this kind of began from like a cranky, bitchy um, beginning with being annoyed with post-internet, but now the work has moved much more productively beyond that. But you know, the way that the way that I think about post-internet is that, um, regardless of how you know different people define it, you know, I've heard people talk about it as a crisis of the internet, but it's it's you know it's just often used as we're living in a moment where internet technologies have so indelibly marked society that all of cultural production is touched by the internet, right? Whether it's online or offline. And of course, like what, what that concept does is it 
treats the internet as a totality that we you know, are now like fully living within and it becomes the bottleneck to understand all of cultural production. So that means, right, everything passes through the internet, right? And then um, it's post-internet. And so, you know, one of the things with post-internet is also that the concept should seem to accommodate for like a very, very wide range of work and uh, different geographical locations, but of course it doesn't. In practice, it is very much relegated to certain kind of art centers in New York and Berlin and supports a very particular kind of, again, debatable, but in my opinion, apolitical artwork. So I think post-internet is not a very good term if you're interested in social movements, um, transgression, politics. Like, the best thing that post-internet would be is a very sloppy starting point for thinking about the present. So um, the first thing that I'm interested in doing with post-internet is actually reading it against itself and turning to the work of the feminist theorist J.K. Gibson Graham, who were two women that wrote under one name, and they had this theory called post-capitalist. And their work was really controversial because um, against a lot of really common Marxist philosophy, commonly written by like, male philosophers that always thinks of capital as a totality, there's no outside to, they're actually like, why would you say that if you're interested in an anti-capitalist practice? And they would do a kind of experimental ethnographic research where they would be like, actually, there are plenty of alternatives happening, um, you know, within the supposedly totalized frame of capital. So I think you could read post-internet, like J.K. Gibson Graham articulate post-capitalists and say, well, one way to move post-internet into a more political realm would be to think about it as the alternatives, the networking alternatives currently at play and in existence within the supposedly totalized frame of the internet. So the next step, again, this is a, another idea from J.K. Gibson Graham, where they talk about, you know, wanting to refuse the idea of capitalism as a totality and move into this realm of um, anti-capitalist or non-capitalist possibility. You, know, you could do the same thing uh, with the internet. So taking their term capitalocentric and putting forth the term internetocentric. And this is actually quite similar to the writer Yevgeny Morozov, who has written about this idea of, you know, internet centrism and has offered a kind of um, similar critique in his book, To Save Everything, Click Here. Okay, so then, um, but still that kind of was not going far enough for me and I have been really inspired by the work of the queer feminist theorist Beatrice Preciado and um, in an early work by her, The Contrasexual Manifesto, um, I was really kind of provoking by this idea of like attaching contra to sexuality as a way to kind of militantly, continuously insist on the unnaturalized kind of battleground of sexuality and thinking about sexual or this idea of contrasexuality as engaged with forms of counter knowledge or um, you know different kind of counterproductions to go against any kind of normalization or naturalization of sexuality. And actually, you know, this was like a serendipitous moment because when I was writing my first bitchy essay on post-internet art, I was also reading Preciado's Contrasexual Manifesto. And it just this beautiful moment happened where when I was reading her manifesto, I just kept putting the word in internet over sexual. And this is what happened. So Preciado offers, oops, offers this idea of dildo tectonics as a way to experiment with contrasexuality. So she says dildo tectonics is kind of the prized science of contrasexuality. And she prizes the dildo because it's this thing that is able to basically constantly um, draw attention to the non-naturalness 
of sexual desire and sexual enactment. So she, in, in her book, has all of these like amazing exercises on like drawing a dildo on your arm and collectively masturbating with a group of people and drawing a dildo on your head. And it's, it's kind of amazing. We, you know, yeah, you should try it. But so, you know, this basically led me to the question, you know, what are the dildo tectonics of the internet? You know, if you were going to follow Preciado's idea and, you know, she calls these, the experimental practices she develops around dildo tectonics, she calls inversion practices. So, you know, this is kind of like where I'm trying to go with this. Like, what do the dildo tectonics of the internet look like? What are the inversion practices that might, or the, you know, the forms of counterproduction that might get you to the contra internet? So, okay, now I'm going to show you some work. So the contra internet work is going to have a lot of different series in it. So there's a totality series, which is, again, looking at this idea of the internet as a totality. There's this inversion series, which are these kind of like short, little, like fun, very performative videos that are trying to um, gesture to ideas of the contra internet, um, and I'll get to the other ones in a minute, but I'm just going to play you this video, so it's called Constituting an Outside Utopian Plagiarism. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, okay, so that is one of them, and the next one is um, on social media exodus, on leaving social media, and this was inspired by, uh, in Beatrice Preciado's Contrasexual Manifesto, there's a section called the Contrasexual Contract. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that because it's so amazing. And also thinking about um, how people commonly post these kind of status updates, especially on Facebook when privacy regulations gets changed. And they're like, oh, based on this privacy change, I won't let Facebook take my data as if that actually will do anything. So I just wanted to do something a little bit more performative and um, a bit more extreme. So I wrote this, I rewrote Preciado's contract to be a, a user's agreement. And it's pretty much a word-for-word -word rewrite. And then I distributed over a set of, um, you know, social media networks. So this part is called call and response. This, um, so this is the call part. And the way this will be exhibited is these um, screen grabs will be printed out, right, as images. Um, you'll, you'll see them in a minute when I show the video. So WhatsApp, Tumblr, Instagram. And then this is the response component to that. Come on, I have mixed feelings about that one, but <laughs> moving forward. Um, okay, so I'm going to try and wrap up pretty quickly. Um, so another aspect of this work is actually looking at the work that social movements are doing, um, particularly in the production of network alternatives like mesh networks or encryption technology. So I'm kind of researching a couple, a few sites right now around the world um, that basically during large uprisings, instances of creating networking alternatives to the internet were actually used by you know various activists or social movements. So um, yeah, these are just some of the examples. I won't go into them in the interest of time, but that's a component that I'm currently uh, working on for a kind of a big, uh, probably experimental documentary or something. And, oh yeah, this is just more utopian plagiarism. So um, the last thing I just want to touch on before I end is I'm actually showing some other artwork that I think fits this um, idea of, the, of contra internet because of course post internet has its darlings that get you know replicated no matter where the shows are happening around the world. So I would actually also like this concept to open up a different genealogy of work that's been happening, you know, like you could stretch this back to the 90s and critical art ensemble, but just to point out some practices today that I think align with this. So 
One would be Misha Cardenas's individual work. This project is called Local Autonomy Networks, where she develops, she uses mesh networking and builds it in clothing. And then it's distributed to, uh, to transgender communities who are interested in uh, community-based responses to violence because, right, um, I, I mean, I guess, especially in a U.S. context, um, there's a lot, of, a lot of talk in transgender politics about not being interested or wanting to contact the police in situations of danger because that could actually exacerbate uh, the problem. So this, uh, this clothing, um, if someone's in danger, you're able to activate um, a node in the mesh network and it notifies everyone else. Another project is by Ian Allen Paul and Ricardo Dominguez. And this um, project is basically these two guys staged a fake drone crash on the campus of UC San Diego. And the reason that's kind of important is because La Jolla, which is the town where uh, the university is in, is where all the major drone manufacturing for the U.S. military happens, including the Predator drone, which is the main drone used to annihilate lots of people. And they staged this fake drone crash, and then they had been plastering all these flyers around campus for months about student groups for drones. So basically, they'd been building all this kind of simulated hype about it. And this drone crash, fake drone crash, enabled them to have this town hall meeting about drone ethics and politics. Um, so another one would be the work of um, actually um, Australian artist Jemima Wyman who currently lives in Los Angeles. And although Jemima's work isn't internet specific, um, she does work with a lot of the patterns of groups that are interested in certain kinds of encryption politics, right? So this is called Space for Cryptic Power. So I think her work, even though it might seem far aligned, actually I feel like really beautifully fits in with this um, idea of contra-internet. Um, this is Dan Pfeiffer who created an autonomous network for Occupy activists to use um, during Occupy Wall Street in New York. And um, this is a project by the artist and curator Laurel Patak called Wages for Facebook, and she rewrote Sylvia Frederici's famous 70s manifesto, Wages for Housework, um, to adopt to thinking about issues of Facebook, immaterial labor, um, that kind of thing. And that's it. Thank you so much.